alone. Bring it back. Welcome to the Endurance Town USA podcast, a state of mind destination where endurance athletes of all levels connect together. This episode of our Faces Behind the Races miniseries is brought to you by Race Roster, a premier North American event registration partner for race directors everywhere. I'm Travis Ford, producer and man behind the curtain here at the Endurance Town USA podcast. Today, our host and Race Slow founder, Samantha Pruitt, meet up with the incredible ultra marathon running icon, Chrissy Mail. Chrissy's been touring across the nation in a role as a running ambassador for Patagonia, and we were fortunate enough to meet up with her right here in our home base of San Luis Obispo, California. So not only is Chrissy a running ambassador for Patagonia, as I mentioned, but she's also a very well-known runner in the ultramarathon world. But you may also know her as an author for her wildly popular book, Running Your First Ultra. In her 17 years as an ultra runner, she's been featured in films by Patagonia and National Geographic, plus she's written for publications worldwide, including the New York Times and Outside Magazine. We've listed Chrissy's full bio in the show notes, and I definitely recommend checking it out. Okay, now I've officially taken up enough of your time. I'll let Sam take it from here. Hey, Chrissy. Welcome to San Luis Obispo. Thank you. Great welcome to have back. you here. Welcome back. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I would like to interview you today and find out a little bit more about you as a, as a human, okay. not just as an athlete and a race director, but we know you in all those ways. And I wanted to find out from you a little bit of your backstory. So can you tell us where you grew up and what your family dynamic looked like? Right on. Get way back in there. Yeah, let's go. So I grew up in Bow, Washington. I was actually born in Pasadena. And it was really cool to get to go back there on this film trip just a couple days ago because I haven't been back in my adult life. And it was probably more for my parents than myself. We moved away when I was a year old. Mm. So Washington is home. I find myself saying I'm a Washington girl or Pacific Northwest girl. And after moving around 11 times in 11 years, including Boulder, Colorado and Bend, Oregon, and a lot are throughout the state of Washington, mostly on the West side, I want to call Washington home. I've kind of proved to myself through all my travels that that is, that's where my heart resonates. I love seeing the world and getting out and filling my passport. But when it's time to go home, it's, it's to the big trees in the Northwest. Well, why did your parents move you at one to Washington? What was the calling there for them? They have all sorts of different reasons of why it was time to get out of California. And I think a lot of them resonate with that whole era of people moving out of California and moving north and getting out of the expense that was building in the California. Like They were able to buy a home where they were affordable, affordable home where they were, and they still live in it 39 years later. Oh, that's cool. They still live in Bow. They still live in both. In the the same house you grew up in? Yes, it's been remodeled many times. (laughs) Another thing of that generation, I think, is they can't sit still. They like to have projects and keep doing stuff. Mm. Growing up with my parents, their big thing was, um, or our big joke now, the way that I travel the world, that roughing it for the male family was traveling in an RV without plug-ins. So the fact that I can go sleep out in the woods overnight with, a mylar blanket just my parents don't know where that came from no Mm. no we always looked at mountains but we didn't go up in them (laughs) other than where the motorhome could drive to Uh so I feel like there was a lot of other things that I gained from my family life my parents had us busy in ballet horseback riding bowling girl scouts any kind of class course flying horseshoe ranch like all these different things that I got to do as a kid Gave me this mentality of like, I can try it. I'll, I'm in. I'll, I'll give it a go. So it was a different kind of adventure 
you know, that they were seeking. Yes. And you tried a little bit of everything, it sounds like. And your siblings, do you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister and probably same mentality. We took different channels with what we learned as kids. She's more career, I wouldn't say I'm not career focused, but hers is a more traditional career focused as an interior designer. Mm. She's gotten into soccer. She beat her body up a little bit with some of the more contact sports, had to have some knee surgeries and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah, but she stayed more career focused. She's back in the Northwest as well. So we've got our little small family unit uh, reconnected up there. In these sports that you were playing when you're younger, were there some that really, you know, you became like, you know, very invested in them? Or did you just try a little bit of everything? Like you mentioned ballet, but then other sports. Was there anything that really resonated and you kind of, it took hold? Oh, I've always been a runner. Always Through, running. Throughout all of that. I played soccer, and volleyball, and basketball. But there was always track and cross country, shouldering a lot of the sports. Mm. And running's a part of all of those sports. Mm -hmm. And I've always considered myself a runner. And it wasn't until I found trail running that I felt like the energy went full circle. Mm -hmm. So I put a lot of energy into being a runner for, gosh, the first, I don't know. I started running track and cross country in seventh grade. Oh, okay. And then when I found the trails, my junior year of college, that's when it kind of made more sense. Like, why am I putting so much energy into this sport? That's when I found. Where did you go to why. college? University of Washington in okay. Seattle. Mm -hmm. Oh, Seattle. Mm -hmm. UW. <laughs> and then you found a running community there, or were you solo running for tranquility and, you know, mental health and so forth? I was a total team player. I oh, mean, as okay. much of a solo sport as running is, I try and make it a team sport, and maybe that's from of all those sports that I was involved in as a kid growing up. Mm. At the University of Washington, I walked on to the cross-country and track teams. Nice. Running at University of Washington also meant running year-round, so my body morphed into more of a runner at that point because you did cross country in the fall indoor in the winter in the spring you ran track so there was not that break to like put on a bunch of weight to be a basketball player or whatever it was mm -hmm. I was doing in the winter back at um, in high school at Burlington mm -hmm. what were you studying I ended up getting a degree in romance linguistics and romance a, linguistics romance linguistics and a what minor in, a minor in Spanish <laughs> That's it cool. was the degree I could get out of there in four years plus one quarter. I studied abroad in Ecuador. Oh, fun. So I guess to backtrack, I ran those sports the first three years of college. Had a blast. Loved being on the team. Having an identity at the University of Washington where the numbers are just ridiculous. So there was something that I could connect into in a smaller scale of group of people. Mm -hmm. My junior year of college, I went overseas and studied in Ecuador for six months. Oh, and awesome. being there... I actually went down there injured. I had some, I don't remember what it was, the injury that I went down there with. I didn't run for the first two months I was there. And one day I was living with my host family, decided that I was just going to go for a run. And they looked at me funny because I was just wearing a sports bra and a pair of shorts. <laughs> it was hot. It was keto Ecuador right up at altitude. Yeah. I didn't know the difference of altitude at that point. Mm -hmm. And I went out and I didn't come back for like two or three hours and just went exploring and they, they were, were probably all worried. worried yeah like i mean they're responsible for this yeah. american girl that's been living with them for two months they know her a little bit mm -hmm. and i kept doing that so i found this like longer distance running than i'd Out ever solo in a wilderness uncharted for you yeah a lot that's of roads cool. i didn't really understand trails and um, running in the mountains at that point so mm -hmm. i would just run these long 
mountain pass type roads, big trucks. And it was kind of a, I guess, some sort of exploratory, but not really knowing enough to do it safely mm -hmm. kind of thing. But I'd always had a coach tell me how many minutes to run or how many repeats to do. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time I was going Unstructured. off my own. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. And, you know, all the foreshadowing or whatever. When I came home from Ecuador, I went back to the running store that I'd been working at prior. And the shop had been bought by a new person. And his name was Scott McCoubrey. Is Scott McCoubrey. He's still around. And he had hired Scott Jurek who had just won his first Western States as his first employee. Um, interesting. And I went back in as a college kid, like I need my job back. I got to pay for school my senior year. And they hired me back. And within, I think it took about six months. I wasn't willing to give up my Sunday morning sleep in, but about six <laughs> months into it, Not they finally, student, you needed it. Oh, well, that was the only day you ever slept mm -hmm. in. I worked at a coffee shop on the, on Saturdays in the running shop on Sundays and then picked up different shifts during the week if I could with my, school schedule so Sunday morning the running store didn't open till 10 so I actually got to sleep in but the guys would get up and go run out at Cougar uh, Mountain mm -hmm. six I think they met at the store at six running by seven and then back to the store by 10 so mm -hmm. I finally got suckered into one I think we'd all been out on a running thing Saturday night and they said you got to come in the morning and then I just never missed one after that so when you graduated, <clears throat> did you determine that running needed to be part of your career path or did you have a whole other, um, you were studying the language of love. So where were you mm -hmm. going to go with that? Yeah, all, <laughs> all the languages of love. Mm -hmm. I had this intention of going overseas and teaching Spanish because oh, cool. I really do love the language. But I gave myself a year to just work at the running store and see what happened in life. Like just you're done mm -hmm. with school. That was what my, like my break year or whatever was just to work in the running store, run all these awesome races. Scott McCoubrey just like tucked me under his wing and mm. took me to all of the, it was a lot of road running at the time. Actually, we did those, like, we had Rainier to Pacific, which is kind of like hood to coast mm -hmm. or half marathons. And just, we just traveled a lot with the store and did some really cool events as teams. My year was up September 1st for me. Like that was when I was going to start looking into this overseas lifestyle or whatever I was going to do. And I think about July, June or July, this guy named Ian Torrance. I'd been friends with him through the trail running community. You probably interviewed him too. <laughs> We're going to. <laughs> He's yeah. great. They're race long ambassadors also, him and Emily. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So Ian Torrance. Yeah. We, um through the running community, reached out. He was leaving the Montreal position that he was working in to go to the Forest Service. And he he took it upon himself to find somebody to fill that job. Oh. And we were actually were working out. He was injured at the local gym together on the ellipticals. And he talked me through the whole position and got excited about it. And thought, well, this is my time. I'm trying to figure out what's next. Yeah. And I put my name in the hat and went through the whole interview process. That must have been June because in July at White River, I was, I ran the race as my first 50 miler. I coordinated all the volunteers for Scott McCoubrey, who was the race director okay. and helped corral the elite athletes that were coming to run the race. Nice. I ended up placing among the elite athletes <laughs> while also being the volunteer coordinator. And the That's Montreal awesome. president was there observing the whole thing. So I quickly made my way through the wow. interview process by... Mm -hmm just showing it in real time. Just out of curiosity, how many females were there at this point in this space? You had to be one of the few. 
I want to say Ann Trayson was there that year. Luann yeah. Park, I remember running mm-hmm. with her. Petra Pierk and Ann Heaslett. <laughs> I think so that was fun. that year. There was a couple of those early years mm-hmm. running with all those women. But that, I think Ann Heaslett won it and Petra was second. Maybe Luann was third or something like that. So you didn't go overseas. I did not go overseas. I took this job with Montreal yeah. as the athlete coordinator and I think one or two months into the job I went to the president and said I need to go to these races Mm -hmm. because I was my job was to coordinate the sponsorship of them which included water bottles and shoes and but from afar quirky little things yeah from Seattle and I said I need to learn this sport you hired me to to get it I love it Mm -hmm. so he approved a budget and I started traveling one or two months into the job Wasatch Front 100 was the first race I actually like bought a plane ticket too and mm-hmm. couldn't believe somebody else was paying for my travel to <laughs> to go see these awesome mountains and that this was a job right like i'm yeah. paid to do this what yeah. not very much but i was paid right. to do it <laughs> yeah. in all the different countries you've been to and environments and it's not just running it's in all these other capacities i mean your conservation and all the other passions that you have what country or what tribe of people did you feel most at home with I would say the one that surprised me the most, yeah. I felt the most home with was in Japan and is in Japan. Really? I, if I had like, if I looked at a map when I was starting this whole thing out, the places that I thought I would have gone, New Zealand, Australia being the top ones, I've never been there. I don't know that I would have picked Asian countries just mm-hmm. out of my life experience up to that point. Mm-hmm. And it is where I enjoy going the most. What I've about been it? Back to Japan three times now and to China twice. Philippines once, Thailand once. Wow. I, um, yeah, Asia and Southeast Asia. The um, Japan really speaks up. If I had to pick one, that's the one that calls out to me because of that desire to connect with with you. So the languages couldn't be more opposite. The characters, impossible everything. Impossible to learn. It's impossible. Like yeah. I'm not probably going to ever be able to say much more than arigato or <laughs> but people like will sit there and look at a map with me and help me figure out how to figure out the subway or you obviously I obviously stand out when I'm there so if I'm looking at it, like struggling at all and show interest to connect with somebody there was never a time that I felt like people just like walked by and eyes down Every, oh. there's always somebody that wanted either practice their English whether it was their own selfish purpose or just genuinely saw that need and wanted to wanted mm. to help and be a part I'm also like a gift giver. I like to travel with little things like chocolate or whatever from home. People always joke that I bring chocolate to Switzerland. Like, Chrissy, really? Like, <laughs> chocolate over there. They have their own. But in Japan, that exchange, like, never stops. Like, if I gave them a, a chapstick, they would give me some chopsticks. Or if I gave, like, they can, huh. you can never just, like, thank you for hosting me. No, 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 we're glad you're here. Like, that that gratitude just keeps going back and forth. So oh, for a lot of different cool. reasons, I guess the last one being the food. I love the Oh, you do? Japanese food. I race really well on noodles and rice. Oh, interesting. Okay. There's a great picture from UTMF of me shoving noodles in my face <laughs> with chopsticks at, at an aid station. station. Oh, I love it. And they just loved that the whitey could use chopsticks. Mm-hmm. You actually have the skill set down. Mm-hmm. In growing up, extracurricular activities, then, was it primarily sports or were there other things? Like, did you have music? Did you have art? I would say primarily sports. Yeah. I guess Girl Scouts would be Girl Scouts. a little different. Mom was the troop leader. She was? Mm-hmm. Mom was very involved. My dad traveled a lot for his work. He was an engineer, a marine engineer. So he would be gone for three to six months at a time. And then he, we say, came home when I was 
13 and worked on the ferry boats. Mm-hmm. So it was around more in my teenage Marine years. Marine life still. Yes. Or yeah. water life. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you grew up with that experience too, mm-hmm. getting that exposure. Definitely. We celebrate the holidays on the ferry boat. We'd go down in the engine room. Dad would make the big turkey dinner and then the house would be clean. On the boat? Home. Oh yeah. My mom loved it. The oh, kitchen was always cool. clean on the holidays. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then she was a troop leader, you said, for Girl Scouts? Or? Oh, she did everything. She organized the school carnival. I mean, she was total PTA mom, soccer mom. She'd mm-hmm. stand on the sidelines, and I would be back in the goal picking flowers, and she'd be, Chrissy, get out your hands up. Mm-hmm. So what kind of values did that instill for you growing up? I feel like I've always been supported, no matter mm-hmm. what. I've never had far to fall. And so to take the leap eight years ago, and say, I'm going to try this athlete lifestyle mm-hmm. to go professional, I, to go professional and see if I can financially support myself doing it. I had two rules. I had to keep enjoying it because when your passion becomes the way you have an income, that gets a little, can get a little scary. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go into credit card debt. I wasn't going to do this at an expense like that. Mm. So the savings that I put aside is still there. I've never touched it eight years wow. later. Wow. And it's definitely amazing. built on it. I've been able to buy a condo and I own a dog now and <laughs> other things that I just really kept things slim for a long time until I could really figure it out. And, um, for yourself now, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of your professional life has involved public speaking, um, writing, mm-hmm. being in films and things like that. TEDx. I mean, you got an opportunity to speak on the TED stage. That was a huge opportunity. Yes. Yeah. So that's another side of you as a professional woman in endurance sports. And how has that served you? What have you learned there? I guess I've always, with that mentality of I can try it or I'll do it or I'm in. On my website, I think it still says that I always approach the world as I'm in. I don't want to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And so when things come at me, like I wouldn't have ever picked to write a book. I didn't consider myself an It author. wasn't on your list. So you didn't no. pursue that. They pursued you. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you really grow up thinking I'm going to be an ultra runner? Not, at least not in my era. What the hell was an ultra <laughs> runner, think, right? I think people now have more of an idea of yeah. what that could look like because there are examples of people making a living almost seen as a viable career, if you mm-hmm. will. It, that was not Or women in endurance sports, period. Take it to one more step. Definitely. Yeah. That was, I had Michael Jordan's poster on my wall growing <laughs> up. I didn't have a lot of women or any women athletes that I even resonated in my mind that that's who I would look up to. Mm-hmm. What's happening with your world now professionally and where do you see women in this industry going? I feel like it spans out across more than just ultra running in terms of how women's, oh, there's something on the news this morning that's ringing a bell, but how the the gap is lessening in terms of why does it have to be women or men? Like we are humans and we're yes, all together. able and capable. And just because we have ovaries doesn't mean we can't run like yeah. all these things or that estrogen. have been proven that like, it's just a different approach. Like you made the comment earlier that that's a more feminine way to coach perhaps the way ah. I, I connect with my athletes. Yeah. It doesn't make it right or wrong. No. It's like some people need that. I have equal number of men and women clients. It's not that I, gravitate more towards women mm-hmm. or men but the people that I work with as humans my approach works for them so I, I feel like that whole like this the separation is changing and how we view it what then comes from it I think there's a lot of conflict because of the history of how it has been separated so how do we now deal under these new guidelines or these new ways that we understand that it doesn't have to be so different just because of our gender or color of skin. Like there's all those, those things that are 
are becoming more forefront now. I, I don't I don't see it as I'm trying to say a separation. Or something that we need to stand on a mountaintop. So some of the things we've talked about in our group that we regularly meet and talk about the industry and ourselves as professionals in it <clears throat> challenges best practices, but how we can support each other in succeeding in this in this way is really that the I think we both feel strongly about the fact that there is no reason to stand up and be like, we're women doing this and we need mm-hmm. to be treated different or otherwise. Mm-hmm. We really don't, actually, and we're just as equal and competent and capable, but really wanting to have that um, trickle-down effect on other women in the industry and girls Mm -hmm. in the sport, endurance sports as a whole, and just having a place at the table. Mm -hmm. But it's not because we're women. It's just because we're professionals and we deserve that space. And the positive impact, the influence of just how we choose to go through it, how that could influence whoever wants to listen, not just girls and women. Absolutely. Whoever like resonates with or mm-hmm. knowing that there's different points of view. Those, well, the lean in mentality of like how a man and a woman are viewed and following, falling into that category where the essay, there was an essay that was written. They changed the pronouns and name from Michael and him to Heather and her. Mm. And he was viewed as a leader. She was viewed as a bitch. Oh, fascinating. Same essay. And when same I, delivery of information. Same delivery of information. It was just the pronouns and the name. And I was fascinated by it because I've I read it the same way and I, I saw why he was seen as a leader and she was seen as a bitch. I've fallen to that, I guess, mm. at times where I'll I'll not speak up or I won't ask for the same thing. And it's not because I don't want to. It's I don't know how. Like I wasn't okay. raised that way. So I, I would say that's the biggest challenge in mm-hmm. that. And why it feels maybe more separated is because of these like ingrained ways of approaching it. I wasn't raised with that. Yeah. So we're fine. We're still finding our voice in this space professionally and otherwise a lot of us are. It's, it feels like more That's of a challenge too. Me. Yeah. Right. It feels like more of a challenge to me mm-hmm. than, it sh- than it necessarily should. Because if I look at my resume or just this week traveling for this film and having different people introduce me, that's a fascinating moment. How they me. introduce you every time. Is it a little different? It's a little different, but with the accolades that they rattle off, uh-huh. if I heard that for anybody else, man, female, I would be like, holy cow, that that's incredible. This woman's been running for 18 years. She's yeah. still winning 100-mile races on the international stage. Yeah. But for me to say that about myself, mm. that's always been a harder pill to swallow, whatever analogy you want to use for that. I, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to own that where I know plenty of people that can stand there and just and own it like that. And I mm-hmm. wish for anybody that's growing up now, just like own it as you go. Don't have to fight for it later. Like you've done the hard work. You've put yourself out there. You've won, you've lost, whatever. Like just own the whole story. Don't feel so, I don't have to con- control it or humble it or dumb it down. Mm-hmm. I guess that would probably be, I feel like a lot of times I have to dumb it down so that people don't put me up on some pedestal or something. I love the terminology on um, being comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like there's aspects of that physically and then being an athlete and then being a professional woman and then being a speaker and then all the other aspects of who you are and then really who we are all as individuals, male, female, and how we all eventually, hopefully, um, over our lifetime do get comfortable in our own skin. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it happens earlier and sometimes it happens later. Exactly. (laughs) So you're still young, but aging. I turned 40 this year. I'm so psyched. It's like everybody says that you stop caring about all that stuff and you (laughs) just own your 
own your story. I think I'm in that process. So you feel that that is happening more and more as you've Mm -hmm. passed 40. Okay. Yeah. And well, and dumbing it down doesn't service anybody. Never. It never Never. helps somebody. It doesn't serve the world. No, Mm -hmm. not at all. Why would you put any kind of shadow over any kind of accomplishment? Because if I shadow mine, then that shadows somebody else's. That It doesn't make sense now. I've done it for way too many years, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense now. Do you, well, you coach, so you actively mentor people right now. And we were talking about your coaching style. It is not just, um, you know, the physiology and the training cycles and all this mm. stuff. You're coaching the full human, the all in human. What does that look Probably like Probably more you? the full human than the physiology side. Okay. Yeah, definitely incorporating the reality of life into their training. Training is a part of what they do. It isn't what they do. And I don't give them a schedule for four weeks and say, see ya mm-hmm. and checking in with them weekly, as long as my travel allows, um, checking in with them weekly to make sure that what I assigned last week still moving forward, how do we build on what they ended up doing? Not just what I scheduled, what to actually happen for them. Did they miss a night's sleep because they had a kid that was sick? That doesn't help with a long run. So helping adjust for their the reality of their life so that their training can fit in. Mm-hmm. That was actually the hardest part about writing a book because it was a solid plan and I couldn't morph it for people week over week. Yeah. So it built in some flexibility and I've had great compliments from people telling me that they really appreciated as much flexibility that they could get in there as much as a book can allow. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like if you need that, a coach is a really good sounding board to talk about how life fits in with training and not just, I would look for that in a coach, not just a training plan because it is hard to follow just a training plan oh absolutely it, it uh, collaborates with your life it's much and becomes a part of your life it's much more doable but what did you learn writing a book about yourself what was that process like and what did you learn about Chrissy I think I reinforced that I'm very much an extrovert ah. <laughs> writing is so introverted and you and for myself to write I it has to be quiet I have to be alone it's a very like solo process introspective yes Mm. and i i get a lot of that when i'm moving and running and the stillness of writing and being in a space with all of those thoughts without getting to move through them Mm. like physically move through them i would say it was probably the most challenging piece of writing and the second piece would be the muse like getting the inspiration to get the words to flow i'd fortunately been taking some writing classes because I do have interest in writing a book of more stories of this crazy life that I've okay. lived. And that's been backburnered due to I guess, life Schedule. in a lot of ways. But the training manual came up amidst this whole writing process. So I feel really thankful of the timing that I'd already been working on how to mm. set aside time to write every day, not just wait for the muse to come, but actually like sit there and make yourself even just type garble, garble <laughs> words so that you get that. Flowing. I had some of those steps already in place, but I think how do you describe your muse? I think it depends on the the project. For this one, for that book, it was my coaching clients. Mm -hmm. I would I really drew on the inspiration that I had from coaching for five years, and that's why it's titled "Running Your First Ultra," which I learned later actually pigeonholed myself Mm -hmm. because I have friends that read it because they're my friends. People would tell me like, "Chrissy, I've run." 50 ultras and this still taught me a lot about my own training or other friends that wanted to hear the little stories that I have in there and they said I'll never run an ultra but I I learned something from this book and will be able to add it to my life and whatever passion that I have so the title really focused on the coaching client that I love to work with 
but it actually spans a broader audience. If I could retitle it, I don't know what I would retitle it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it, um, that was who, who I wrote to was my, my early coaching clients. Those first timers, people that are curious and maybe even think it's impossible, but they're curious enough to try. Mm-hmm. And then the one, the ones that give me a call and say that they did it later. Mm-hmm. Those are my favorite stories is when they, they get to share the, I've gone through the hard bits with them, whether it's learning how to eat better, how to run uphill faster or be more efficient in their training or working with their time and then have the event or the race that they've been working towards go well because they went through all of the hard and low, the lows and highs leading up to that point. And I got to share all of that with them. Okay. So I'm really interested in, um, getting to understand a little bit more about what your value system is. And one of the things I see that I think is a little bit unique is that you have very strong values because I've gotten to know you as a human being and I have a lot of respect for you. you. But I see this interesting connection between you and your personal values and your personal brand and the brands that you align yourself with. And you've had a lot of sponsors for many, many years. So I was wondering if you could speak to those brand alignments and in particular those value alignments i think the value alignments that keep coming up for me are longevity and relationship and connection Mm -hmm. and one of the maybe challenging things in working with brands is there is turnover there and so your relationships with the actual people end up changing and but the brands that stay true to what their core mission is the people that they hire all stay within that same mission and i've been able to stay aligned with brands like Patagonia and Basque Footwear for over a decade because of the type of relationships that I maintain with the brand and the people that come and go through throughout those years. What are the core values there that really resonate with you? I feel like with Patagonia, the main one is that I get to keep learning. So that's, I guess, I don't know if that's a value or if it's just a motivator in how I work in life. I love to keep learning and Patagonia challenges me on many fronts and has led me into a lot of this conservation type work through saying you're going on this project to Patagonia (laughs) to encouraging me to speak about a film that I wasn't even a part of reading their blog and being like infiltrated with the messages that they've got. I feel like I've tied my own values in terms of doing the little bit that I can with what I have to do the best I can with what I have. I guess that would be a value that I have. Mm -hmm. And then applying that to things like conservation or race directing or my coaching clients, like always giving the best that I can to whatever it is that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Really answering the question though. Mm-hmm. Well, you and your core values. So, I mean, I know you value conservation, you know, and human connection and travel and kind of a hunger for learning and adventure. Mm-hmm. Those are some of your core values. Is there anything in particular that really like rises to the top that maybe people wouldn't know about? I would say they probably know, but I love connection. (laughs) Any of the big events that I've done, criticized or not for my team effort, I think with long distance running, there's this whole envisionment that it's so solo and you have to go alone Mm. to to achieve the bigger goal. And I don't believe that. I feel that life is better shared and the experiences are better shared. Tahoe Rim was a really good example of that. I received some strong criticism for like having a team and having somebody run with me the entire time. And, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also received, people thought that was a negative. <laughs> some people <laughs> thought it was fantastic. A, negative. A, a lot of people really resonated with the story of these twelve people that got yeah. that worked together to create this bigger One thing. It, we did it. Mm-hmm. I ran all the steps, so it's 
the FKT is Chrissy's time that went around the lake, but that time wouldn't have happened without those 12 people that absolutely joined me and picked out what clothing I was wearing, what food I would eat. And I think that's all part of the experience going through the lows and highs together. They all were there when I was really buggered up at the bottom of Rose mountain or coming off of Rose mountain and got me re rallied to go the final 60 miles. I had to find it somewhere in me to, to do put, the work. put one step and foot in front of the other. It's a heck of a lot more enjoyable when there's, people there that want to give you their energy to it too. So that core value of connection and sharing experience plays out for better or worse in in how I approach all of my experiences, I guess, not just running. Mm -hmm. So I have a final question for you. As a race director, and if you could build any race, like time was not an issue, finance, resources, the success of the race, no, no other obligations externally, and you were going to create any kind of race, what would it be? Something different and unique that maybe is kind of funky or fun that you just would sort of dream up in a crazy way? I really like the multi-day Do you? type events. Okay. And like what? Whether it's a race or not. Trans Rockies was a really fun experience. Uh, running around Kilimanjaro, it wasn't a race at all, but we spent eight days stage running camping. around camping. Mm-hmm. The sag wagon piece of it, meal preparation, working together um, through setting up camp, tearing down camp, going for a run figuring out how to bathe, like all those pieces I think are a lot of fun. So getting more than just a race, Mm -hmm. but putting things, experience, experience, putting people together, creating an environment. I I think that's why I love coaching these camps is there's, we're going out and running and then we come back and we have time to interact. You get to share stories about what happened on the run, learn a little bit, boil it down to the basics, running, eating, and sleeping. If that really could be my (laughs) career, I would, but that's not a reality. Exactly. And you also know with the multi-day stuff how you really do change over those days. Not only together, you know, as a group and who you're sharing that experience with, mm. but you as a person because every day you just strip away like another layer mm. being out in the wilderness. Oh, that's my favorite thing about running. It's the easiest way to connect with someone. You're not wearing some costume. You don't have your, like, appearance that you have to uphold. You're all wearing shorts and a t-shirt and maybe a hydration pack and yours isn't any better or different than mine and we can just go for a run doesn't matter what you bring up to that point if you're a race director or a lawyer or a garbage man or a nurse or whatever we're all runners in that instance and it strips away so much you get to learn people so much faster it's a great equalizer yes rather than sitting across the table if any first date could be on a run i would be that's like the way you should do it (laughs) (laughs) and so in closing Is there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience about what you've got coming up next or just some words of wisdom to keep people inspired? Is there maybe just discovering running, ultra running, or any kind of endurance sport for that matter? Oh, man, that's a big question. It is. It can be. I always answer it very simply. I'm thankful for the lesson that my mom taught me at my very first ultra was to smile. To smile. This is the Girl Scout. It's so basic. But she, it was more out of fear and a little bit because she told me that if I looked like exhausted or tired or peakish or whatever, she pale, she would pull me from the event. Really? So I came into every aid station like full <laughs> smile. Hi, mom. It didn't matter where I was at or what was hurting or how hungry I was. I just, wow. hi, mom. And then the next year I was injured and I couldn't run the race, but I was there supporting a friend of mine and I bounced around all the aid stations to crew him. 
and everybody at the aid stations, you were that girl last light last year. You were smiling the entire time. And it just like resonated with me. Like what a wonderful way to be remembered. remembered. And then also there was some tough times in there. And then to have to smile, to, to get to keep going and choosing that. Yeah. It's helped me in other events as well. So if it's feeling kind of gross or whatever, you're usually your whole body language changes at that point. Your shoulders crouch down, your head looks down, you're only looking two feet in front of you. And there's something about a smile that reverses all of that. Your head pops up, your chest opens up, you breathe a little bit easier. And oh, maybe it's not so hard. Or that actually translates to life too. Oh, totally. <laughs> and how other people reflect that energy that you put out. So whether you're arriving at an aid station and all these people are there, right? You know, we're race Definitely. directors and we've worked at a lot of races and we've um, been at you yes. know races in a lot of capacity. And isn't it funny the energy exchange that happens out there with others? You come across in the course or whatever, and if somebody's really in a funk, how kind of you know it sort of soaks up mm -hmm. into your space a little bit, and yeah. it's hard to deal with that sometimes. Whereas if they're totally rock solid, like energy even though they might just be falling apart at the seams mm -hmm. like that feeds you too definitely mm -hmm. and i wrote about that in my book a little bit like you also have to own where you're at like own your story mm -hmm. but if you can find some humor around it so like if you end up puking on somebody's feet like make a joke about <laughs> it or whatever like man this sucks to be right here right now but i'm sure glad you guys are here with me or whatever yeah. whatever you can do to like shift that energy mm -hmm. a little bit I'm still working on applying that to life. I always, we always have to, our lessons to learn. Every day. Mm -hmm. Well, that means that you're still putting yourself out there and open to new experiences, right? Oh, there's always something to learn. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you're not building character, you're dying. So I'd rather be on the other side of that. So. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap it up. Thanks again for your time. It's oh, always great to see you. Yeah. And we'll glad I got to come to... through slow again. I'll see you in a couple months. I know. We'll see you at the slow ultra. Yes. A huge thank you to Chrissy for carving out so much of her time to sit down with Sam and I. You can follow Chrissy on Facebook and Instagram at Chrissy Mail. That's K-R-I-S-S-Y-M-O-E-H-L. You can also find her at ChrissyMail.com. And thank you for joining us on this adventure to Endurance Town, USA, where we chat with people of all levels living the endurance lifestyle. Thanks again to our partners at Race Roster for making this Faces Behind the Races miniseries possible. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button on your device now to hear more of our podcast as it lands. And follow us on Instagram at Endurance Town USA for fun videos, behind the scenes photos, and all kinds of cool stuff. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time we go on this journey to Endurance Town USA. Bring it back.